This episode is brought to you by Griefline, Australia's national not-for-profit service that offers free non-crisis support to anyone experiencing grief or facing any type of loss. As well as their national helpline, Griefline has loads of incredible free support services, support forums, grief education and resources, and even corporate and volunteer training programs and workshops. If you are struggling and need extra support or want to know how to support someone who is coping with loss, visit griefline.org.au. You're listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humour. Welcome back to the Good Morning podcast. And welcome back to Australia for me, Sal. I have missed you, mate. Welcome back. <laughs> I have missed you too. Guys, we are your hosts, Sal and Im, and we are coming in hot with an incredibly important conversation for you today with TikTok creator and mental health and addiction advocate, Gwen Dudley. But before we get into any of that and today's conversation, Im, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. How the hell are you? I've missed you. It feels weird being on the mic with you again because it feels like it's been forever. It has. It, it does feel like that. And I've missed you too. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing you in person now that I'm back. Um, I'm doing okay. I love a bit of self-torture. The minute I landed, I have to pack up my house and move house in a week. So that's been going on. Um, yeah, it's all a bit full on here on Casa de Im at the moment. Casa de Im. So for listeners yeah. who don't know, Im had a month in the UK visiting her partner's family. Yeah. The first, first time, time since like, mum died. Yeah, first time since my mum died and like because of COVID. So it's been like nearly three years. Um which is wild. Like when mum died, they were all trying to come over. Like we were organizing passports, then the borders closed. So we had like no support from Ben's side of the family, which was really hard. Like them being so far away with such a tragic thing going on. So Mm -hmm. that was really tough and it was really emotional to see everyone like, and they, they, the last time they saw Layla, she was six months old. So now she's three and a half. So yeah, it was a really, really, important special trip um but the travel grief is real <laughs> like can we just... oh my god tell us about the travel grief oh my god I did a post like oh my god my jet lag hours I was in Singapore and I did a post on our Instagram um and I was like I'm so jet lagged and so griefy and just poured my heart out to like IG like out into the void just in case <laughs> anyone was awake and was feeling the same And I tell you what, like the response to that post was so big. Like, can we just highlight like travel grief and how... What did you say? What were you feeling? I think I was just saying like how difficult it was to go and do a trip like without my mum. And I think mum was, you know, she was just interested in the shit everyday bits of my life. Like what I was eating on the plane, like when I got to the airport, when my plane was going to take off, like she wanted to know everything. And I felt really lonely. Like I had no one to kind of share that stuff with. Well, even though I do, but I feel like they don't care to the same extent that my mum used actually was so invested. They care about the unfiltered bits, don't they? Like the reality, the unfiltered bits, not the glossy bits that we present to everyone else on Instagram. And any second I'd I'd have a spare moment at breakfast or whatever, I'd always call my mum and FaceTime her and give her an update and she loved it. And it was just, it felt really hard not being able to do any of those things and creating new memories without being able to share them with her um, 
So it was my first big overseas trip and yeah, yeah because she was so invested in my, my holidays. Um, that was really griefy. And you had a, you had a bit of a special time when you were in the UK, didn't you? With some other griefy peeps. Oh my God. Yes. I totally forgot about that. Oh my God. Thanks for what did we call it? Like the grief leaders conference or something. <laughs> what was it? International. Um, so in was like, basically Rebecca Sofa, who we've had on the podcast before, happened to be in London doing a talk at the same time as Im. So I was like, Im, you need to go. Because she yeah. messaged us, didn't she, to say, can you share this with your audience yeah. in the UK? And then I was like, Im, yeah. you need to go. And then Im was chatting to Amber from the Grief Gang. So you met up with Amber to go and see Rebecca's talk. And I was oh like, mate, this is like the International Grief Leaders grief. like conference. <laughs> the Grief Summit. The International <laughs> Grief Summit. IGS. 2022 it was so funny but how oh, was it you facetimed oh, me i loved it i wish yes, you were there i love them and it was like i wish you were there but it was so good i met amber for the first time in real life so obviously like we've been members of the same grief community for years and um we feel like we know each other but she met me at the train station with a can of gin i fucking love her so on brand yeah, for amber I, isn't it i love her and like i felt like like I, Sebi cried when I saw her. It was weird. It was like someone, Aww. yeah, it was really, really lovely. And we caught the train into into London, and then, um, yeah, watched Rebecca's talk, which was amazing. Even though we've heard her twice on our podcast before, she's still so bloody articulate and incredible. And I learned so much from her every time. Um, and I met some of our followers, which was amazing. So shout out to the lovely people who we met. Um, and yeah, we went out for drinks afterwards. Had a giant pizza bigger than my head and yeah it was just a really really lovely lovely night but we missed you oh I loved FaceTime you guys and it looks so I'm so glad that you got, all got to meet up and yeah. you know shoot the shoot the shit about grief and yeah <laughs> you don't get to do those things often right all from America the UK and Oz so, I know, so good. It was incredible it was incredible um but thanks for holding the fort while I've been away holding all the good. fort is that the is that the saying holding Hold down the fort <laughs> <laughs> holding down the griefy fort holding down the griefy fort but um how are you doing sal i know you've got a big annie coming up oh tis the month guys tis yeah. the tis the death anniversary month for me and um i feel like we did a post didn't we a couple of months ago about like some days grief is fine and then some days it's like having a heavy slab on your chest and it's been a, yes. sla- a it's been a slabby old week um, it's, it's been a slab day it's been a slab week so yeah like i'm doing okay but i'm also feeling heavy you know that grief yeah. heavy that tired it's almost like you know it's coming your body's like batting down the hatches yeah um, so yeah so it's my mum's anniversary on the 20th of November so coming up so when this is released it'll be really soon soon after yeah. and it's just madness to think like it's been three years since I spoke to her almost and or heard a voice or you know like since she died like three years is and I know that's not a long time in the grand scheme of things but I think sometimes like the further away you get from it the more real it is because it's like oh yeah like it's it's been a it's been a wee while now this is just life without them so mm. it's been it but is it but it also I'm in a different like it's a weird kind of grief because like I'm not crying all the time and I'm not like the grief bombs haven't been hitting but I feel the heaviness and I feel it in my body but then I am able to cope like for example I looked at some videos of her 
the other day and I I didn't cry and I almost mm. you know sort of was like oh mum you know so oh. I think it's important to sort of highlight that that you know I am sort of coping with it even though I'm coming into the third year and it is shit and I miss her and I'm feeling my grief is a little bit different in a way and hey let's chat around the anniversary weekend because I could be very different. Or Christmas, like, yeah. Yeah, I'd be like dodging the bombs left, right and centre. But right now I'm like, I'm sad, but I am like coping sad, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually feeling like the same. Mm. Maybe it is a coming into the three-year thing, but like I feel the same. Like I actually need to schedule in a grief sesh soon because I haven't had a big cry for a while. Um, and it's just, but it is, it's in your body still. Yeah, you know, you know, it's there. Like it's it's sad, but it's not like hot mess crying in the corner. Sad. Like, yeah, it's like maybe like moment. a it's maybe like a six sad rather than like a nine sad. You know, <laughs> <laughs> On a scale of one to extremely sad. But you know, we all know that the bombs can hit unexpectedly, especially around milestones. So. Yeah who knows but right now today in this present moment I'm just slabby rather than like yeah and feel the slab you know just embrace the slab Sal and do some weightlifting with it or something you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway Uh... enough about us and our griefy slabs and international grief summits (laughs) (laughs) who are we talking to who's today's guest in um today's guest is a very special one so this is a topic that we've been meaning to cover off for a long time. Um, We're talking to Gwen Dudley, who lost her partner Duffy to a fentanyl overdose in May of 2021. Gwen is doing, she's doing such incredible work, isn't she, in raising awareness and smashing the stigma around addiction, trauma and mental health on TikTok. And like him said, we know this is this is a really important topic and one that many of you um, have asked us to cover on the podcast for a long time now because we know a lot of you have lost a loved one to addiction. Yeah, and nothing is off the cards in this conversation, guys. Um, Gwen, who is a recovering addict herself, shares her deeply personal story about her journey as a recovering addict and how her addiction stemmed from childhood trauma, how her partner Duffy came to relapse, the stigma that comes with addiction loss and how we can be better at understanding the connection between mental health and addiction. It's a really important conversation and incredibly educational. So, so important. And guys, before we go, we just want to say, don't forget, there is still time to order our grief and loss affirmation cards for Christmas. They are such a brilliant way to give yourself some extra support on griefy days or a perfect gift for someone who, you know, might be struggling around this time of year. So the get, link, to- <laughs> sorry, get, I was going to say, get in quick guys. Cause I was literally up to like one in the morning, packing 102 orders going out. So getting quick because they are flying out the door. But yes, you can find the link to buy them in our show notes. Okay, guys, let's jump in. Gwen, you're no stranger to grief and you've experienced multiple losses over the years. Most recently, your partner and father of your son, Luca Duffy, died from a fentanyl overdose in May 2021. So still so fresh for you. And there are so many layers to your story that we want to talk about today. But to start, we'd really like to talk about your history with addiction. Where did it all begin for you? Really, it began when I was in middle school. So 13 years old is when I first started drinking and dabbled with pot, you know, normal experimentation. But pretty quickly, alcohol was an issue for me. Binge drinking, 
blacking out and all the people around me were doing it. So I was like, this is normal for my generation. Mm -hmm. Right. But <laughs> it definitely wasn't. And I didn't realize probably until 19 that it was a problem. I was at a party at that time, a new year's party and few people got into a fight and I went to jump in the middle. There had been a lot of drinking and I was stabbed and it was pretty brutal. And I ended up having PTSD and severe um, tendon and nerve damage permanent in my arm. And I almost lost my arm and oh. I went to, yeah, it was pretty bad. And I went to a therapist and they were like, you might have a drinking problem. <laughs> and I was like, mm, I don't know. But then they put me on benzos for PTSD. Mm -hmm. And those are very addictive, you know, like Xanax and that type of thing. And so that started a track for pills with me. Mm. And I didn't get into any harder drugs until I was in my late 20s. And when I was about 26, I went to rehab for the first time. And so Benzo, so Xanax, was that sort of given to you to treat the, the trauma or the anxiety that had come from the incident? Panic attacks. Yeah. Yeah. It's so common for that to be handed out and it's such a dangerous drug. Like I've had Xanax before because I have anxiety too. And I felt myself slipping into a bit of an addiction with them too. Yeah. Something I haven't talked about on the podcast before, but you'd sort of start to make excuses yeah. for taking them. And it, it just started to become a bit of a, a thing. And, you know, as you mentioned, it kind of felt normal for you when you were young and lots of people were binge drinking and, and, you know, we can say the same thing here in Australia and in the UK, like, you know, when we are, when we are young, it does seem to be the normal thing to do. And it, and it's, and it's hard to step back and kind of identify that as addiction issues, isn't it? Right. Definitely. You think, mm. well, it's okay until it's not okay. And addiction runs heavy in my family. So I think some people being genetically predisposed, mm. it creates a mental affliction that's different than it might be for some people who could recuperate like, oh, I'm getting addicted and let me fix this problem. That for mm. others who have that proclivity, they go down this rabbit hole like I did. I was engaged and I was planning to move to California and get married and start this beautiful life. And all the while I had this alcohol and um, amphetamine problem and it was spiraling. And I ended up just doing some things I'm not proud of and um, realized that I needed help. And, you know, I was pretty suicidal. And I was like, if I keep doing this, I'm going to die. There was a moment where I felt that very strongly mm -hmm. and I called a rehab and they were so kind and loving. And that relationship ended because I hurt him. And I was kind of at this ground zero. Of, well, what do I do? And so I went there and there were all these people there that were like me and they were in pain in the same way and they were using in the same way. And I didn't feel like I had to hide anything about myself. You know, I worked at a jewelry job and I was always putting on this nice picture for people 
And there I could just be raw and I had the resources of therapists and they were taking us to AA meetings and I learned about recovery and what it looks like to be fully sober and have a happy life. Something that we've learned and we know is a belief of yours as well is that addiction stems from mental health issues and trauma. And it's something that I think people still need educating on, which is why it's important that we're having this conversation. And I'm a big fan of the work of Dr. Gabor Mate. Are you familiar with him? No. So he, so he's an addiction expert and he believes that addiction originates in trauma and emotional loss. And the source of all addiction mm-hmm. starts in early childhood environments. So I thought that was interesting and something that I think a, a lot of people don't know. Right. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah. People don't always sort of necessarily realize that we're struggling, Right. Yeah. And I was in school as well. I was going to school for journalism. And so I had all of these things that I was juggling. I was planning a wedding, you know, and it, you know, I had my bachelorette party and I blacked out and it was just Mm. a mess. And it's like, oh, I'm going to a winery. It's totally sophisticated, you know, but really, and I think people, they didn't want to believe that I was hurting that badly Mm -hmm. because they wanted a good life for me so much. Mm -hmm. My family, especially they want, they wanted to believe this storyline and I was crying on the way to work every day. I was not a pleasant partner to be around for my fiance. I was missing work all the time and making up excuses for why. And like I said, I was suicidal. So, I mean, that's something that I thought about almost every day. I didn't want to be here. I, I didn't. I'm so sorry. That's, it's just, it's so, so difficult to deal with. And like Im said, you know, the mental health and the trauma, and, you know, you talked earlier about your experience with being stabbed, like that's a huge thing to go through, isn't it? And the trauma that comes from that. And then everything that came as a knock-on effect, like it would have been an, so hard like I imagine so hard to cope with yeah and truthfully I had been through much more trauma than that um from a very young age so getting stabbed was probably one of the least traumas that I went through which I don't mean to laugh laughing's like a coping coping mechanism (laughs) I do it too yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) but um it, yeah, there was, there was a lot of, um, sexual abuse and mental abuse and just a lot of different things that went on from a very young age, 12 years old is really when it kicked off. And then I drank for the first time at 13. So I love what you said about that. You said he's a doctor. Yeah. The trauma expert Gabor Mate, and he really believes to that. We need to treat addiction, uh, with kindness and compassion and realize that pretty much hundred percent of people with addiction issues have trauma. Exactly. Exactly. I could not agree with that more. Mm. And I think there is still a lot of stigma attached to addiction as well. And there's something that you've said on one of your TikToks that people have said to you, like, you don't look like an addict which is another important thing that we want to discuss because addiction doesn't discriminate. And I think this kind of ignorance just further adds to the, 
to the stigma attached to addiction as well. Being in recovery, I have so many friends and people that I love who are addicts or alcoholics and they're all walks of life. Mm. So the stigma, I just wish it didn't exist because it would eliminate so many problems for so many people. But it's hard because a lot of people have negative experiences with addicts and alcoholics. And Mm. so the stigma is an easier place for them to go than to try to treat it with compassion and see that they're sick. It's a confusing thing. It really is. I understand both sides, but there's, we, we can do better. We can all do better. We definitely can. And I'd love to know from your experience, Gwen, like, how can we be better, you know, as a society, like what, what has helped you or is there something that, that any listeners can do to, to, to be more compassionate or be better if we, if we are, you know, if there is someone in our life with an addiction or maybe in the future, we'd love to know your thoughts on that. Well, I don't know if they have it where you are, but here they have something called Al-Anon, which is support group like AA, but for family members of alcoholics and addicts. Yes. I think there is something like that here in Australia. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That I think can be really helpful. Um, learning about addiction from addicts, Mm -hmm. you know, who are sober, um, and just understanding. I think the biggest thing for me is that I never wanted to grow up and be an addict. That was never the plan. Mm -hmm. That was never what I saw for myself, you know, Mm -hmm. as a kid, I was like, I want to be a doctor and help people. And that was my big goal, Mm -hmm. but life happens. And some people, there are so many factors. So I Mm -hmm. just feel like education and compassion Mm -hmm. are the two biggest um, things that people can use if they want to understand. Educate yourself, read, find out about, you know, what, what sort of stems what's beneath the surface, I think. And like, you know, we've just talked about, you know, the trauma and mental health issues is massive. And I know that's a really big part of your message and, and what you're trying to spread as well, Gwen, but it's being informed, isn't it? And, and looking at things with, you know, an open and compassionate lens. And at 12 years old, you're so young, you know, Mm -hmm. it's such an important time developmentally, for you and to experience that level of trauma of that age like we're so sorry that you went through that but you know I think when then when you're thrown into social settings where everyone's binge drinking like it can just get out of control and I think when you're when you're in so much pain drugs and alcohol numbs it and mm-hmm. that's what's happening people are just numbing their pain and you know, I don't think there's enough access to like mental health issues and there's not enough education around trauma for people to actually get to the root of the problem and heal what it is that's causing that pain that they're trying to numb. Right, exactly. And that's what I always said is, I think that drugs and alcohol are an appropriate response to severe Mm -hmm. trauma. If you don't have other resources, Mm -hmm. I didn't have a stable family life. I didn't have people that I could go to and get help. And so my peers were my family in a way. And why wouldn't I try, I try something, I feel better. The noise Mm -hmm. in my head shuts off, you know, what trauma does to your body physically 
in and of itself is astounding. If, you know, there's this book, The Body Keeps Score. I don't know if you've heard of it, but yes, Bessel van der Kolk, big fans. Yes, it blew my mind reading that book of what it actually, and so that's a great education tool for anybody that wants to understand those who've gone through trauma and are addicts because, you know, Mm. veterans, that's another component. Mm. Like that's where it all stemmed from is how many alcoholic and suicidal veterans are there. And so, like you said, it all goes back to pain. These are people in pain. These are sick people and we need to treat them that way. And that's, that's the other thing is we had no idea about Bessel van der Kolk until Sal and I had been through loss and our own trauma. And we did all of this work. Like we didn't know that trauma stays stored in the body. Like we had no idea. And then when you're going through trauma at such a young age, like you did, like, how are you supposed to know what you need to do to help yourself? And we're not educated on this. I'm very passionate about it, as you can tell. (laughs) I love it. I'm getting chills. I love it. When you were in rehab, I know you've said before that you felt like you'd been given a second chance. So how did that turn your life around? Did it turn your life around? Like talk us through sort of that period. Well, I was a mess. Honestly, I hadn't been sober in so long. And they say that you stop maturing at the age that your use gets the worst. Right. So you're kind of like, okay, I'm 26, but mentally I'm here where my trauma began. And so it was just a lot of, I I had so much healing that needed to be done. And instead I ended up getting in a relationship with somebody in rehab. And, um, you know, that was a great success, you know, I'm, uh, I'm kidding, but it's not something I would ever recommend to somebody. Right. (laughs) But I mean, codependence is also something that goes hand in hand with trauma in relationships mm. or sexual abuse trauma. And so I had a foundation from rehab, but it's not a fix all. The mm. work begins when you get out of treatment. And it taught me that AA meetings were a huge resource and what goes into that. You know, they took us to meetings. They set me up with therapy when I got out. And, you know, they gave us some books that we could read and they educated us about addiction. And so those were just the foundational pieces and it didn't, I ended up going to two more rehabs. So it didn't stick because, you know, a number of different reasons, but that is where I feel like my life truly began, honestly. And something I've heard you say before, which I thought was really interesting. And I think people might not realize this is that you've said rehab is really just the beginning of the journey. Yes, exactly. Because you've had all these years of bad habits or just habits. You've you've been this one person for so long. And so it takes a lot of hard work to undo that damage. Mm. Gwen, we'd love to hear about Duffy. Will you tell us about how you two met? Yeah, absolutely. I love your smile that's just come up when I said his name as well. (laughs) Yeah. Duffy was the most amazing person that I've ever met and that I think a lot of people have ever met. Um, 
we met in recovery. So we were both sober and my sponsor, which it, for anyone who's not familiar with recovery, when you go to a program like AA, they have somebody called a sponsor who takes you through these 12 steps that help tremendously with your sobriety and with having a spiritual awakening really, which is what's needed to stay sober. Um, and so I went to my sponsor's house for a cookout and, um, he was there and I was just immediately drawn to him. He's so handsome. He's so charismatic. And we were friends for a while. And then we started dating and, you know, we had the same goals and interests and we both wanted to build a life that we'd never had before because we have very similar backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Duffy had a tremendous amount of trauma in his life and his father is an alcoholic and, you know, he grew up with a lot of pain as well. And we wanted to create a life for ourselves that we had never had. And mm -hmm. we did that. And you had a beautiful son called Luca as well. He's yes. so sweet. And, you know, <laughs> Duffy, he sounds like an incredible guy. We, we obviously follow your TikToks and you share your story through video format. We, you do it so well and we're always so captivated by them. And um, you've also mentioned that he was a peer support specialist for the health department prior to his relapse. So would you tell us a little bit about that and what he did there? Yeah, so he was actually going to school to be an addictions counselor as well. He got this job with the health department as a peer support specialist, which that was a grant through the county that was specifically put in place as a response to the severity of the opiate epidemic. Mm -hmm. And a peer support specialist is just somebody who goes and speaks to addicts that overdose and go into the ER as somebody in recovery to say, you know, he would walk in all dressed up into the ER and I would always tell him like, tell me the part where you tell them you're an addict because he would look so polished and <laughs> put together and he'd go in there and, you know, after you overdose, you're not okay mentally. And usually they Narcan you and you're very out of it. And they're looking at him like, oh, another person, you know, to a social worker or something like that. And he would say to them, I am in recovery and I've been where you've been. And this is where I'm at today. In so many words, he was so good at connecting to people. I mean, just his heart was so big and he could get through to people. The nurses would say, how did you get that person to talk to you? You know, wow. because they would be these horrible patients to the nurses. And then he would come in and everything would change. And that's what I mean about the love and compassion. Mm. It goes a long way. And so he would get them into treatment and, you know, we would go to AA meetings and people would come up to him and say, I don't know if you remember me, but a few months ago you got me into treatment and I just want to let you know, you saved my life. And wow. Oh, I'm getting emotional hearing this. You just sound so amazing. Yeah. And that must've been so rewarding for him as well. How did that come about for him? Well, I think it really stems from what, AA taught us. And the 12th step is to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to the next addict, right? And so 
you're continuing to, that's the whole point of AA is one alcoholic helping another or one addict helping another. Mm. That's magical, right? Just like with us, we have this shared Mm. bond of grief Mm. and I can help you and you can help me in a way that other people can't because they haven't been through it. Mm. And so the program taught us that and he just had a desire and a passion to use his pain to help people as a career, because why not, you know, why not do something you love and you're passionate about? And he heard about it through a friend of his and he was like, I need that job. (laughs) And at what point, Gwen, did Duffy start using again? Now, what led to his relapse? His relapse was hard and fast. Um, His mental health started to decline because he was under a lot of stress with work. He was working two jobs. Financially, we were struggling. He was putting a lot of pressure on himself, really day-to-day life stuff. And then my dad actually passed away um, and he had pancreatic cancer. So that was a long process and he was trying to support me. And, you know, we had a toddler. He wasn't yet two at that point. And it it was the winter time, you know, seasonal depression is a thing. And Mm. he was just struggling in so many ways and didn't get help. And he struggled to ask for help. He struggled to tell people that he wasn't okay, despite the fact that he loved doing that as his job. I mean, I think in some ways it's like you want to, you don't want people to know that you're not doing well. And did you notice anything around that time? Definitely the depression. He was not getting enjoyment out of anything that mm. would normally bring him happiness. He had a lot of anxiety. He was, you know, there's like this, this addict behavior that starts where it's small stuff. Like mm. I'm going to addictively mountain bike and it's still not making you feel better. I'm going to drink caffeine. And it's like, you try to just keep doing these things. And it's, I saw that happening. Like extreme, extreme behaviors to try and feel better. Yes. To fill a void. And like, that was very obvious to me. And he wasn't going to meetings. He wasn't talking to people. He wasn't, he tried therapy and he didn't like his therapist and he gave up. So is it? Yeah, I, I definitely noticed it and tried to help. And he wasn't, he thought he had it under control. And when did things take a turn? So he passed the beginning of May. And I would say after my son's birthday, which was the end of March is when it really started to spiral. And he came home high mm-hmm. and I could tell right away I mean as some, you know some people they have loved ones who use and they don't know the signs but I'm an addict so I could tell right away and it was like he had so much relief and I could see that mm-hmm. it was like he had been white knuckling this pain that he was in mm-hmm. and then he was relieved and I could see that and then afterward it was like whoops I made this mistake everything's okay though. I'm going to fix it. Mm. 
and then it just kept happening off and on and if you don't mind me asking what was he using Gwen yeah so his drug of choice was cocaine and Mm -hmm. then people will do heroin to come down from that so it was a mix something I've heard you say before is that in Baltimore you could that you can just literally go onto the street it's not really patrolled by police you can just go and you can get anything it's like a just very it's very easy to to get drugs and and it's it's not really patrolled is that right can you set the scene for us because um I'd love to know a little bit about how accessible it was for him at the time it sounds like it was maybe quite easy for him to just go out and and access the drugs is that right yes I would say Baltimore is kind of like a black hole that place where you cop drugs I was taken there as well um I had an overdose about um almost a year before Duffy and I started dating and it was from going to Baltimore you know somebody Mm -hmm. showed me how you do that and you just drive in and there are cops but they turn a blind eye to it wow and you drive up almost like a drive-through it's that easy and you ask for however many of this and that that you want give them money and drive away okay let's pause for a moment to talk about today's sponsor national not-for-profit griefline and their new griefline knowledge service which aims to provide grief literacy education and training for individuals workplaces schools and community groups so you can get to know grief to better support yourself and others and whether you're supporting someone grieving or navigating loss yourself i think we could all do with being a little bit more grief informed couldn't we absolutely guys these new evidence-based courses and workshops draw on grieflines decades of experience supporting australians through all forms of grief and loss Grief knowledge program themes include cultivating a grief-informed workplace, addressing loneliness and social isolation triggered by grief, which is a big one for a lot of us, how to support a grieving friend, advanced grief theories for professional therapists and workplace bereavement support groups. And as part of the Griefline Knowledge Program, we've actually partnered with Griefline to create a joint free ebook resource on how to support a grieving friend, where you can learn how to support and confidently interact with others experiencing grief, loss, and loneliness. And you can find it on their website or via the link in the show notes. I feel like everyone needs one of these ebooks. <laughs> Give them to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get more people knowing how to support people. And plus, if you're grieving yourself, Griefline Knowledge has coping strategies and self-care routines to promote physical, emotional, and mental well-being, which are all things that we need when we're feeling griefy. For more information on the new Griefline Knowledge service, visit knowledge.griefline.org.au. Now back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about fentanyl because it is a big issue in the States, um, particularly like we hear about the the epidemic all mm-hmm. the way over here and I've watched documentaries on it. It's very confronting. Yeah. Yeah, so fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that's 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. And if you just Google a picture of a lethal dose of heroin and a lethal dose of fentanyl, 
a lethal dose of fentanyl, it's just a few specs. And so when people think, oh, they overdosed, they're thinking somebody just took too many drugs recklessly and they died. And that's how it used to be. Yeah. Now it's laced into all drugs, even mm. pot here. And you have young teenagers who are just experimenting for the first time and they're trying, let's just say a Percocet. Their friends like try this Percocet, but it's pressed. It's a fake pill and they die. Jesus. And all, I mean, all you have to do is go on TikTok and look up the hashtag one pill can kill or hashtag fentanyl awareness. And it'll show you videos of moms who are the mothers of young high schoolers. And it's, it's devastating what's happening with fentanyl. And that's what got Duffy. I think this is a really important thing to talk about is the stigma of his addiction. Is that right? And is that something that you think led to his relapse? Yes, absolutely. I think he just wanted to continue to be in the eyes of everybody else, this person in recovery who was helping people. And mm. he wanted to be the pillar for me and Luca. And mm -hmm. he didn't want to have anybody see that he had a problem, even though that's what he did for his job, you know, was helping people. There's still a stigma even for that. He was afraid of losing his job and just what people would think in general. And that consumed him. Even the day that he actually overdosed, I was begging him to go to treatment and he was like, I will lose my job. And, and at that point it was like, how is that even a factor right now? You know, mm -hmm. we don't need the job, but it's the stigma. They, they would have worked with him, but he had it in his head because he knows how strong the stigma is. And Gwen, you're sitting here today telling us this incredibly painful story. You've been through so much loss and so much trauma. And I can imagine that Duffy's death would have had a really, really big impact on you. How did you cope around that time um, of his of his passing? And yeah, the fact that you're sitting here today, I'm just, I'm, I'm proud of you for everything that you've gone through and you, you're just an incredible woman to be doing the work and the advocacy that you're doing after everything that you've been through. Thank you. Being in recovery and having a network of people that that's the thing. When people look down at addicts, addicts are some of the best people that I've ever known. Mm -hmm. Those are the people when sober who will show up in a way that nobody else will. They will show up, they will help you, they will take care of you, they will hold you up until you can hold yourself up because somebody did that for them. And that was a big part of it. I have a connection with a higher power that I choose to call God from being in recovery that kept my faith really strong. Mm And I also reached out to somebody I knew who lost her husband to an overdose six months prior to Duffy and she was in recovery. And so I reached out to her just knowing that somebody else's experience could help me. And I put myself out there, you know, she was like, I teach yoga, come to yoga. And I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to do any of that but she said it would help. And mm. 
So I did it and it did help. And I went to therapy and I go to therapy every single week Mm -hmm. and I went to a grief group. And so it was like, I was like, let me do everything I can think of so that I don't lose my mind because I know myself. And I think people were expecting me to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And I kind of was too, but Mm -hmm. Duffy taught me so much. And he was the most amazing person that I've ever met that I felt like I would honor him by turning his death into something beautiful and that was truly his legacy, which was to help people. And so that's a big part of it too, for me, is I I need his death to matter. Mm -hmm. One of our favorite quotes is be the things you loved most about the people who were gone. And I really feel like you've done exactly that with Duffy and just jumping back a little bit, you mentioned that you were doing yoga um, and you found that really helpful. That's something else that we've learned through Bessel van der Kolk's work is yoga is actually one of the most effective treatments for trauma that's ever been, you know, studied. So if anyone's listening and they are struggling, um, yoga is, is a really great tool to use. And um, I also, yeah, I also wanted to ask you, do you think having Luca helped pull you up out of bed as well. I know, you know, through, through my trauma, my daughter was nine months old when my mum died by suicide. And at, at the same time, it was really hard, but it was also the thing that got me up a lot of the time as well. How was that for you? Yes, that he's one of my biggest reasons. And mm. he, he was definitely my guiding light. And he is a piece of Duffy. When I look at him, I see Duffy's expressions and we love him so much. And our entire life was built around giving Luca a future and a family that we never had. And I know that Duffy's death is gonna have a profound impact on him over time. But I know that everything I do now matters. And so I've taken that in stride in my grief, just like you said, you know, you got up on the days you didn't want to for your kid. And I think a lot of mothers in grief do that. Mm. And Gwen, how do you include Duffy in Luca's life? Like what advice do you have for anyone listening who has a, has a child and wants to continue that bond and keep them in their life. How do you do that? Well, I talk about him a lot Mm -hmm. and every night before bed, we have a ritual that it just started. And now he asks for it every night. I started a Google drive folder of videos because I just have so many videos I took of all of us together. And the Google drive folder is something I want for him to have later when he's older, that was really my goal so that he can watch videos of Duffy anytime. But now he asks to watch those videos before bed every night. And so he always says videos of Dada. And that's our part of our routine. He gets a bath and then PJs and we watch videos of Dada. And, Mm. you know, Mm. sometimes that's really hard for me, but it seems to help him. And it's kind of like his time spent with his dad Mm. and I talk about him and other people in our lives talk about him and so 
I'm never going to, and I, and I said to him, you know, that he died and mm -hmm. that he was in heaven. Um, I don't know how much of that he understands, but I think kids understand more than we realize. And we give them credit for, they're very receptive, aren't they? And just jumping back a bit, something that we have we have heard is that due to the stigma of addiction, you know, you, you can feel really isolated in your grief. And aside from, it sounds like the yoga, and, and that is an absolutely amazing uh, way to release trauma. Is there anything else that, that has helped you and also helped Duffy's family? I think, like you said, because of the stigma, a lot of people do feel isolated. And so I went to a grief group that was specifically for substance abuse loss. Mm -hmm. And then when I started on doing videos on TikTok, I was getting so many responses with the same, I lost my brother to a fentanyl overdose. I lost my wife. I lost, you know, mm. and I was like, I need to just start a group. And so I started a group and all of those people are like, we have no one else to talk to, you know? We have comments in our Facebook group. People um, are posting saying that they've lost their brother to fentanyl overdose, their son, um, other family members. So it's amazing that you set up that group and we'd love to have the link to that and we'll link it in our show notes for anyone listening because we have noticed that there, there are people wanting to connect with others going through something similar and, and yeah, it's good to know that there's that resource for them. Absolutely. And I just changed it to be every week. I was doing it every other week, but it's growing and it, I realized that people needed it. So it's every week, every Thursday at 8 PM Eastern. And did you feel yourself that there was any sort of shame attached to your grief? I know with, with suicide loss, there is, I, I, I deal with that element of it, but I know with addiction, you know, there can be that element of shame because of the stigma as well. Did you experience that? I think most people do. I think I'm kind of an anomaly because I'm in recovery and so many of the people in my circle are also in recovery. And so he, Duffy is not the first loss I've had. I mean, I've lost a lot of people to addiction and it's, it's sadly normal in this circle. And, but even others who would ask how he died, I just said it because I wanted to raise awareness. I want the stigma to end. And I think all of us can play a part if we set the example, you know, and that's hard, it's hard to do, but at the end of the day, I don't care what they think and maybe it will help them. Maybe that's the person who also lost somebody to addiction and they don't know how to talk about it. But if mm -hmm. I say it, they will. That's how I look at it. Sometimes it is just letting them know it's safe and it's okay to open up and talk about it. I think sometimes, you know, when we feel shameful about something and even like, you know, grief, I know Im and I have experienced this. It's almost like people aren't quite sure, but then if you give them the lead or the nod that it's okay, it can work, you know, it can really open up that conversation. When you try to share your grief with somebody and they want to make it better or mm. offer their stories or it's just holding the space. I love that when people mm. say that holding the space, those were the most helpful people to me in my grief and still the ones who just listen and they mm. let me talk about Duffy. I love to talk about him. It makes me feel he's not his body is dead, but our relationship didn't die. You know, mm -hmm. it's, 
he's still very much a part of my life and he always will be. So I think just listening to people, loving them and never making them feel like the addiction part of it was somehow them choosing to die. I mean, it's any death. It's like, it doesn't matter whether it's suicide or addiction. This is an illness component and we need to look at it that way. Absolutely. And you are doing, yeah, like we've said, an amazing, amazing job at educating people and we just appreciate your honesty and your bravery and for sharing your story so openly with us um I think this this episode is going to impact a lot of people in a really positive way and like you said just having those conversations you know it's okay to talk about it um Mm -hmm. we we had we have a uh a thing called Grievers Anonymous now it's a new segment for our next season of the podcast and we had someone call up and leave a confession saying that their dad died by suicide but they felt too ashamed to tell people so they said that he had a stroke and it absolutely broke my heart and it just it further like concreted why we do what we do and having these conversations and sharing our stories um, because it lets other people know that it's okay. It's okay to talk about these things and Mm -hmm. there's nothing to be ashamed of and there's nothing to hide and it's so important. So yeah, thank you for, for being brave and for sharing your story with us, Gwen. It means a lot. Thank you. Of course. She's such an incredible woman. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely so inspired by her bravery me too and I'm so glad that we found her on TikTok like this is the amazing thing about social media like there's people out there doing such brilliant things like raising awareness of some really important topics so we hope that you guys take as much from this as we did and before we go a huge thanks to today's sponsor Griefline. If you're struggling and you need some extra grief support, you can call Griefline's national toll-free helpline on 1300 845 745 or visit griefline.org.au to access their Griefline knowledge program and support services, which are also detailed in the show notes. Until next time, guys. Bye for now. Bye, guys.